In the Old Testament, book of Daniel, chapter 2, beginning at verse 31, where Daniel's interpreting the dream of, uh, of the king. And then secondly, we're going to go to the New Testament, to Luke chapter 7. Our prayer is that the Lord would speak to us through his word and through his spirit. Daniel chapter 2, uh, chapter 2, yeah, verse 31. Think of the mustard seed, think of the maple key as we're reading this and what they become. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on the feet of, the, of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the earth, the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to you, to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and the toes are partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes are partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. So far from Daniel, and then if you would turn with me to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 7, beginning at verse 18. If you look just earlier in chapter 7, you see the faith of the centurion where Jesus healed his servant and then Jesus raises a widow's son 
And then comes verse 18. John the Baptist, who was now in prison, John's disciples told him about all these things that Jesus was doing. And calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the one who does not fall away on account of me. Let's leave it there. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when you pray, said Jesus, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. As William Willimon and Stanley Hauerwa say in their book, Lord, Teach Us, unexpectedly, quite surprisingly, politics has crept into our Christian praying at this point. Here we were talking about God and heaven and holiness, and suddenly we find ourselves in the middle of a political argument about a kingdom transferred to some new place that calls into question the old places in which we have lived. We have not prayed, Lord, bless our nation or Lord, protect my family. We pray, your kingdom come. Unquote. And how fitting it is for us to consider the creeping in of politics in our prayers since we're in a federal election campaign and drawing closer to election day. Even as I was watching the federal leaders debate and listening to some of the things being touted by the parties in this election, I couldn't help but think, Lord, may your kingdom come. And when the leader of the Quebecois, Bloc Quebecois speaks about secularism as a virtue for Quebec society, I cannot help but pray, your kingdom come. This kingdom language of the Lord's Prayer may have been radical for those living under the authority of Rome and may be radical for many today, but it wouldn't have been radical or a surprise for anyone who understood the Scriptures. Even as Jesus stood before Pilate during his trial, Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were so, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Oh, said Pilate, you're a king then. You are right in saying, I am a king, Jesus said. And all of that was reiterated by Jesus himself when just before he ascended into heaven, he declared all authority, all authority, think of that term for a minute, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me because I have overcome death 
In other words, the testimony of the scriptures is that Jesus is the king of heaven and earth. Now, the concept of a king or a queen or being a royal is not really foreign to us. We have some idea of what that means, although many of our ideas are, I, are many of our ideas may come from the Shakespearean plays like Julius Caesar. Or our ideas may come from such Netflix series as The Game of Thrones or The Crown, or from such stories as Snow White or Lord of the Rings, and so on. And when we think of the royals who are found in those sorts of stories, we make all sorts of associations with royalty. We think of territories or kingdoms over which they rule. We think of such things as attendants, perhaps dragons, armies, Thrones, palaces, power, authority, prominence, subjects, and so on. And when we talk about Jesus being king, we make similar associations. He has his kingdom and his attendants, the very angels who do his bidding. There's a throne, there's power, there's authority, there's prominence, and the like. And like any king, Jesus has his armies, namely the legions of angels led by the archangel Michael. Like earthly kings and queens, Jesus also has his subjects, all people who are called upon to recognize him as Lord and King and pay homage to him. But if we start making comparisons between earthly kingdoms and the heavenly kingdoms, in all of this we must remember that Jesus is not just any king, just any royal. On the contrary, he is the king. Biblically speaking, before whom every other king or queen or ruler must bow in obedience. As we pray, Jesus taught us to say, Father, may your kingdom come. Now that term kingdom has lost much of its meaning for us, at least compared to how things are, were in the world earlier in history. Many of today's kingdoms are but a faint replica of what they used to be. We think of the Think of the British royal household and the British Empire, for example. What used to be a vast worldwide empire with an absolute monarch has been reduced to a commonwealth of nations with a monarch that's little more than a figurehead. So it is with many of the kingdoms of the world, with the exception perhaps of present-day kingdom of Saudi Arabia, where the royal family rules supreme. And then, of course, there are always those kingdoms in fairy tales where, quote, long ago and far away in the kingdom of Did lived a king by the name of Derwin. Or perhaps think of Lord Farquhar, the ruler of Durlock, where Shrek played a role, or, or maybe the White Witch of Narnia comes to mind, and so on. In other literature on the silver screen, the term kingdom is used to describe realms of empire, emperors who control vast territories among the galaxies. And usually in these fairy tales or in the science fiction writing, the king, the ruler, is absolute. And with kingdoms being the stuff of fairy tales and fiction and not really being terribly alive in our world or reality, there may be a danger that when the church or Christians speak about the kingdom of heaven, our minds immediately conjure up images of a fairy tale kingdom or a galaxy called heaven, which is far away, a utopia, a place where we go once we die, a place where God rules as a supreme emperor. 
And thinking about a king and a kingdom or a queen and a kingdom can also cause us to think, well, that's rather quaint. As many a monarch may be viewed by us at this time in history. The concept kingdom of God can easily become for us an abstract idea far removed from us, some theological term, but a term that basically has no bearing on our daily lives. And if it does have any bearing on our daily lives, it may be about as much as what Queen Elizabeth has to do with our daily existence It doesn't take much thought to have the word kingdom carry ancient, historical, fairy tale, or science fiction connotations for us. But that's not the way the Bible views the kingdom of heaven, and consequently that's not the way the Heidelberg Heidelberg Catechism views the term kingdom when it talks about God's kingdom. On the contrary, when a Christian speaks about the kingdom of God, it's very much related to each one of us and our daily lives. It affects us personally each and every day. This is not some abstract theological concept that we speak about when we want to sound sophisticated. On the contrary, it's as close as our prayers. Your kingdom come. Christians back in history who prayed this prayer and who used this terminology knew that it was very real since they were often charged with treason for pledging their allegiance to the kingdom of God while being citizens of Rome or some other earthly kingdom. Thus there were and there still are many people who actually have lost their lives because of the kingdom, because of their allegiance to the kingdom that we're praying will come. It's that relevant, it's that important, and it's that close to us. And so we pray, your kingdom come. And notice that as with hallowed be your name, we're still at the point of addressing God in our prayer. That's where we have to begin. Our attention is always to be directed to him before we can even start to think about ourselves. And so rather than focusing our attention on and praying for our kingdom to come, Lord, bless our nation, Lord, protect my family, Lord, prosper my kingdom, we need to listen as Christ teaches your kingdom come, O Lord. As with the first petition, we must have our priorities straight as we bow before the Lord. Well, what is this kingdom of God that we're called upon to pray for? There is a toy often played with by little children. I think many of you will know it. It's made up of a number of plastic or wooden boxes, one fitting inside the other. One box fits inside still a bigger one, which in turn fits inside a larger one, and so on. All the boxes or all the plastic containers fit into one, into the largest box. And if you turn them over, you can build a tower. You know, you know those toys. You've, see, you've seen those toys. In God's creation and his dealing with that creation, the highest, the widest, the vast, vastest reality is what the Bible talks about when it talks about the kingdom. Of God. That's the largest box of the toy, if you will. 
And into that box fits everything that the Lord has made, everything that exists. Each one of the smaller boxes, we might say, represents something, one, one area of life or another, the church, the home, the school, creation, and so on. Everything that we have made, all of our groupings, associations, relations, structure, and so on, all fit into the largest box. And that box sets the boundaries, as it were, of the kingdom. Its sides bind everything that's in it in the large box. In like manner, the kingdom of heaven binds everything that God exists. And God rules all of that. He's the king over the large box and consequently over everything inside the box as well. Of course, like with every illustration, it breaks down somewhere because there really are no bounds on the kingdom of God. And we should note that the scriptures, in the scriptures, the term kingdom does not only speak of all the, thing God, all the things God rules, that is everything inside the box, but it also refers to the ruling itself. So kingdom speaks both of the realm and the reign, both the territory and the dominion over that territory. So if you think about that for a minute, the definition and the illustration just given indeed makes the kingdom something grand and vast and large. So how does that impact us? Well, it tells us right off the bat as we sing, this is my Father's world. That means everything in this world is His. It's all under the rule and lordship of Christ, and we and everyone on this planet owes him allegiance. When I attended the climate rally in Waterloo, we were urged as a crowd to pledge allegiance to the earth. And it's amazing how that works when you're in a crowd sitting and people do that. All around us, people were, pledge my allegiance to the earth. And I thought, Really? Is that what we're doing? The earth is not king. God is king. I pledge my allegiance to him, not to the earth. I'll look after the earth, but I won't pledge my allegiance to it. The kingdom of God working in the world by the word and spirit, as the catechism puts it in answer 123, your kingdom come means Rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. God is the king over it all. He sets the standards and we, his subjects, we are his subjects who increasingly ought to be living in accord with those standards, perfectly reflecting the king. We ought to be reflecting the king perfectly in every single way. We don't perfectly reflect the king yet, but that doesn't mean the kingdom's not here. On the contrary, it's here. That was something John the Baptist had to learn. He had preached that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and that people had better repent of their sins. And he no doubt thought that Jesus was going to establish an earthly kingdom of order and peace and prosperity, ruling from Jerusalem, sitting on a, on a human throne and the like. 
Then as he watched Jesus and later while he's in prison heard reports about him, John became disappointed because Jesus in whom he had put all his hopes appeared to be nothing more than a great preacher and someone who practiced brotherly love and did all kinds of healing. That didn't sound like a king with a kingdom. There was no revolution. The powers of Satan were still strong and able to attack. Life didn't seem to have changed very much for those in Israel. The Romans continued to be in charge of the country and such. So John sent a message to Jesus, are you the one that is to come or should we expect someone else? Are you indeed the king that we're talking about and, and what you're representing, is that the kingdom of heaven? And did you hear how Jesus answered? Jesus said, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. The kingdom of heaven has made its presence known. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, meaning it's right here. I'm standing right in the midst of you. I'm showing you through my life and through what I'm doing what the kingdom of God is all about. Many had cherished the idea that the kingdom would just would be an earthly utopia in their day. But just looking around, they could see it wasn't so. But Jesus said, right in the midst of your misery, right in the midst of your sin, right in the midst of your darkness, the kingdom of God has come because I am here. The Lord, in the person of Jesus Christ, came right down to where we are in our misery and our sin and he gave his all so that we might enter the kingdom. And the Lord has been building on that kingdom for 2,000 some years now. Actually, he's been working on it since the day mankind fell into sin. So when we are praying your kingdom come, we're praying that it may come for, not that it may come for the first time, but that we're praying that it may progress and that it may grow so that one day it will be unveiled, completed, and revealed in all of its glory. Notice how the Catechism answers the question regarding the second petition. The answer, if you happen to notice it, what we were saying together, is written as a prayer, which has a certain momentum or crescendo going from ourselves to when God will be all in all. We sing, time like an ever-rolling ever stream bears all its sons away. Well, God's kingdom moving through history is like a non-stoppable tidal wave. It's like the rock in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that it was cut loose from the mountain and it rolled, destroying the image, and then like a snowball in packing snow, it grew more and more and more until the entire earth was filled with it. That's how the catechism speaks about the coming kingdom. The prayer of the catechism begins with us. By the power of the gospel and through faith, we are made citizens of the kingdom. And as citizens, we're called upon to obey and reflect that the Spirit is in us. We're called upon to be living letters. But the catechism doesn't stay there. It keeps growing. The prayer then grows to include the church, that it may be kept strong and that Jesus will add to it. It's a prayer that the gospel may be continually spread all over the earth and that many will come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
And then from submission to God's will and adding to the church, the prayer changes tone and asks the Lord to destroy the devil's work as well as to destroy every force which revolts against him and every conspiracy against his word. And as you read this answer of the catechism, you can see the kingdom growing and growing and growing and the rock getting larger and larger. As history moves on, we are getting closer to the completion of the kingdom. In his nail-pierced hands, Jesus holds the scepter of the universe. By conquering death and the grave, he, he gained the throne. He gained the crown. And so the cross and the empty tomb stand as the charter of his kingdom. They are the symbols of a victory that Jesus that gave Jesus the right to rule the world and to bring it all back under his Father in sovereign control as it had been before the fall. And all of it is growing and growing until all things will be perfect and God will be all in all. The kingdom of heaven came when Jesus came. Once it was here, it began to roll like a stone from the mountainside in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. More and more were added to the church. And if you, if you read the book of Acts, you see that stone rolling and gathering thousands upon thousands. And still thousands are being added even today. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is proclaimed in all areas of life. And as the rock rolls on, it doesn't destroy, but it heals and brings life, not death. It brings order, not chaos. It, doesn't, it does destroy, of course, all that stands in the Lord's way. But its ultimate goal is restoration. And so we pray for its coming, and it will come. Once someone wrote that a person's biography should begin with, not with their birth, but with their death. For he suggested a person's life is revealed only by its end and its goal. In exactly the same way it can be said that the secret of history is revealed only as we see its end. And actually that's the way the scriptures kind of look at world, history of the world. Even though the first pages of the Bible talk about how the earth came to be, they already include something of the end and the goal of redemption, of goal of creation. The purpose of the early writings is not only to tell us where people came from, but also to tell us where they are going and what plans God has for his entire creation. And then when we go to the last book of the Bible, namely the book of Revelation, we see something of the secret of history. There in the final book of the Bible, we read about the course of the world as seen from its end. And it ends in songs of angels, in the songs of the redeemed, in the song of Moses, in the song of the Lamb, as we heard about there and th this morning. And there the kingdom is described as coming in its all, in its fullness, in its majesty, in peace and shalom. The church is strong then. The devil and his work has been destroyed as has everything that has stood against the Lord. Evil is overpowered, and the Lord is all in all. Today we are living with the promise of the end ringing in our ears. We pray for it every time we pray this prayer. We hope for it. Jesus has defeated the last enemy, death in the resurrection, and now we wait for all things to be made new. 
your kingdom come is to be our prayer. Lord, may you be over all. May you be recognized as Lord of all. May your purpose for us and for this world come to a perfect end. And the Lord has promised that it will all indeed surely be. I am coming soon. What a comfort. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come soon. Amen. Lord, we pray that you would rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Keep your church strong and add to it. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. Do this, we pray, until your kingdom is so complete and perfect that in it you are all in all. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.